As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three expert witnesses on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. $6.4 trillion. That's the estimate of just how much the US has spent on the war on terror. That would be the equivalent of giving every single US citizen $19,700. No questions asked. This was meant to be a quick war. In and out. Knock out the Taliban, kill bin Laden, and be home for Christmas. But now we've been in for 19 years. And hundreds of thousands are dead and wounded. With each passing fighting season, the situation also gets worse. With the Taliban now control a contest of almost 70% of the country. We are at the point of the war where the US State Department is no longer counting the amount of ground the Taliban are taking back. But yet the rhetoric from Washington seems to be similar to that of the famous Mission Accomplice speech. But now there's a peace deal around the corner, where America can finally declare victory and leave Afghanistan. But is this peace deal a withdrawal and a handover to a stable government, much like the British leaving Egypt? Or is this a rout? A panic to get the last helicopter out of the city, reminiscent of the dying days of the Vietnam War. Well, that's our question for this week. What does the future hold for Afghanistan? Is this peace deal actually viable? And will the US leave with dignity, or with its tail between its legs? We'll to talk more about that. We turn to our first guest. Part 1. Quicksand. Unfortunately, you know, there there's several groups and each of them have different definitions of what it means to, to win. So, for example, in at least in Washington, D.C., over the past two to three years, there are three camps of Afghan war analysts that have emerged as, you know, the, the war has been winding down to some extent. One group are those who believe that U.S. troops must remain in Afghanistan till it becomes stable or till at least there's some semblance of democracy. And this group, I would say was was the loudest in the past and potentially the most most funded, the most backed, and um, the most supported internationally as well. Um, another group consists of those who say that the U.S. should withdraw a majority of its troops but keep special forces there to aid the Afghan government and Afghan national security forces. I mean, that group argues that U.S. special forces will help increase the capacity and uh, capability of Afghan security forces. Sahar Khan is a fellow at the American Cato Institute, as well as a leader for the American Pakistan Foundation. She is also the co-chair of the Asian Politics Branch of the International Studies Organization and an expert in Afghanistan and its surroundings. She joins us today. But then finally, there, there are a group of people that are growing in number who argue that the U.S. should withdraw completely because the war needs to end. And ending the war would, would be considered winning the war. Now, now each of these camps just have a different definition of, of, of victory. And I think the issue now for the United States is, well, how do we withdraw U.S. troops? 
And then when do we withdraw U.S. troops? And also, how do we spin it as we have won the war, right? Um, so there's there's a big struggle over some of the optics of, of withdrawing troops and, and what that means. As we said earlier, we've been through the more detailed history of Afghanistan in our previous Afghan piece. And I highly recommend you check that out to get a better understanding of this highly complex nation. In that piece, we go through the countries fighting with the Mughals, the Sikhs, and the British. But the invasion that's particularly relevant to this week's topic is the Soviet invasion of 1979. So can you just briefly take us through what caused that conflict? Sure. So um, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, basically, you know, like you said, it occurred in December 1979. And the Soviet Union actually, you know, intervened to support the Afghan communist government in its conflict with um, anti-communist Muslim guerrillas during the Afghan war, which was from 1978 to basically 1992. And, you know, they ended up remaining in Afghanistan. Now, um, a lot of people don't really think about this when they think of the Soviet invasion. But for the Soviet Union, one of the aims was to spread communism, of course. And um, in April 1978, Afghanistan's centralist government, which was headed by President Mohammad Daoud Khan, was overthrown by left-wing military officers. And then, you know, the power was basically divided internally between these, you know, sort of two left-leaning communist groups. And um, what ended up happening was that there was infighting within that government. And, and as the government was weakening, the Soviet Union then decided to, um, you know, aid and abet them in a way. And, and some of the infighting was also beginning because there were anti-communist groups that began coming up. And these anti-communist groups were later, you know, became known as the Mujahideen. But basically these anti-communist groups and then, of course, the communist government clashed. It was basically a civil war. And then the Soviet Union introduced or, you know, sent in 30,000 or about 40,000 troops in, in December of 1979, you know, to, to topple the government. And then eventually they ended up staying, sort of similarly how the U.S. is now staying in hopes of rebuilding Afghanistan. It didn't quite work well, well for the Soviet Union, and I think for the U.S. it's still up for debate whether or not it's uh, working. The main characteristic of the Soviet invasion was the sheer brutality of the invading forces towards the end of the war. The Soviets ran helicopters over cities and sprayed civilians with rockets and machine gun fire. The invasion cost the lives of two million Afghan civilians, and there was almost no one left who hadn't been directly affected by the Soviet strikes. To just give you an idea of the sheer brutality of the fighting, the Soviets unleashed thousands of bicycle and teddy bear bombs across the country. These bombs were meant to be picked up by children and were packed with enough explosives not to kill the child, but enough to blow its limbs off. The aim here being that if the parent had to stay home and care for the disfigured child, they wouldn't have time to take up arms and guns against the Soviets. This was one of the most brutal wars imaginable. But much like how the Soviets and the Chinese sent aid to the Viet Cong, knowing it would be used to hurt Americans, the Americans began funding the Mujahideen and the Pakistani intelligence service, knowing that it would hurt the Soviets in their war. The US donations were responsible for shooting down over 450 aircraft and killing around 20,000 Soviet soldiers. Even to this day, it is argued it was one of the main things to shake the Soviet system. It cost the US $134 billion in today's money to run that operation. But afterwards, the Soviets retreated back over the Soviet-Afghan friendship bridge, back into modern-day Uzbekistan. 
At the end of the war, over 50% of the surviving Afghan population was under the age of 30, with almost no infrastructure in place to support them. So in 1989, the US State Department asked for just $1 million from the US budget to rebuild schools and infrastructure in Afghanistan to help educate the now huge underage populace. But they were knocked back. No education funding was given. Do you think we may have created a much more stable Afghanistan if we had just put the money in and helped to build up the schools? Or was it simply just too expensive a US project and no one really cared about that theatre after 1989? I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think the tragedy of Afghanistan has been not all the resources that the Soviet Union and even now the United States and NATO forces have sort of, you know, wasted in the country and their own lives. But the tragedy really is the loss of Afghan life and loss of Afghan potential. I mean, Afghanistan has been in a civil war essentially since the late 1970s till now. The U.S. invasion, even now in 2001, did not really bring any kind of stability to Afghanistan. And it would be great, of course, to to build schools, to build roads, to, to help Afghanistan rebuild itself. But without some sort of security, that kind of rebuilding um, is not very effective. And even if schools are built, right, there's no guarantee that children will be able to attend schools, that there will be teachers there to teach, that parents would feel secure sending their children there. So those soldiers we were funding in the Soviet-Afghan war how similar are they to the soldiers that we were fighting in the 2001 invasion? So they're kind of the same guys. I mean, basically, you know, after the Soviet invasion occurred and, and the Mujahideen were basically, you know, the, the anti-communist fighters and they were predominantly Muslim groups and they were aided and um, funded heavily by the United States through Pakistan. And so the Pakistan military received a lot of money from the U.S. and they were the ones who were responsible for, for training the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan. And so when, when the Soviets left um, and, and the Cold War ended, the United States essentially left too. And they basically just, I would argue, kind of turned their back on Afghanistan. Um, what ended up happening then was that there were a bunch of Mujahideen who were basically unemployed. And so some of them, I think, you know, ended up doing other things in Afghanistan or becoming part of certain militias of, of warlords or, or, or et cetera. And some banded together to, to become the Taliban. And then eventually when, when the Taliban took over, they had aspirations of creating or recreating Afghanistan into this Islamic emirate where, you know, it would be ruled by a very strict um, Sharia law or their their interpretation of, of, of Sharia law. And and so the Taliban were, were basically Mujahideen. A lot of them have, have roots um, from the Mujahideen. They, a lot of them had credibility um, in, to some extent in the public because they had fought the Soviet Union um, and, you know, anti-communist, being anti-communist basically meant that, you know, you were pro-Islam um, in, a, in a very simplistic sense. And so, yes, I think the Taliban, a lot of them were the Mujahideen, especially the, the leaders. So we discussed this in our previous Afghanistan piece with our CIA friend who was actually part of the original operations in Afghanistan. The first few months of the conflict were actually very successful for the U.S., they knocked out the small military the Taliban had, and they were starting to buy off the correct warlords, and victory kind of looked possible by 2001. 
And at this crucial point, the operation was largely handed over to the military, particularly the army, to focus on spreading democracy and nation-building in Afghanistan. So why did things tend to fall apart after that part of the operation? As soon as that shift occurred, problems started occurring, right? And now we're still there. It's been 19 years. So basically, you know, it's not the military's job to rebuild the country. The military's job is to do, is to combat, right? And, and do special operations, which is what the U.S. military did and was very good at it. But ever since the rebuilding has occurred, it's been kind of a mess in Afghanistan. And and every single, from the Bush administration, every single administration we've seen, you know, the Obama administration, now the Trump administration, is trying to figure out first how to rebuild and then also now how to get out of it. If you look at the mission of Operation Enduring Freedom, right, the, the mission was basically you go and you topple the, 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 the Taliban government and you try to capture Osama bin Laden. And of course, at that time in 2001, the U.S. was unable to capture Osama bin Laden, but the Obama administration was able to in 2010 and then, you know, subsequently killed him. So, you know, you could argue that once that was done, the U.S. should have withdrawn its troops or even once the Taliban government was toppled and it was clear that it, it you know, it's, it's, it's not going to last and, you know, um, we have to capture Taliban and Al-Qaeda, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the U.S. the U.S. should have left. But instead, the U.S. decided to stay. I think that would have been victory. You know, now the problem is nobody really knows what victory is. Nobody really knows how to define victory. And um, as I said earlier about sort of the three camps of analysts that have developed over time within D.C., that each camp has a different definition of victory as well. So when people say or when anybody really asks, well, how can we win this war? I don't think the answer is that simple, because what does winning really look like? I mean, for some, it means staying and building and rebuilding Afghanistan, putting more money into Afghanistan to, to build roads and schools and, and do various kinds of developments. For some, it means, well, we need to leave because, you know, it's not our job to rebuild Afghanistan. So I think that's that's the that's a tricky question. Nobody really knows what what victory means. One of the arguments put forward by people like Trump and Bolton was that we lost because we simply didn't go hard enough on the Afghans in the early stage of the war. Do you think that theory holds any weight? You know, have we not already done that? Has the U.S. has already used or still really is using a lot of its military might and force? I mean, if you look at the number of troops and the amount of resources that the United States put into Afghanistan, even from like 2001 to, say, 2003, right before the Iraq invasion. And then even after the Iraq invasion, when the Obama administration did the surge in 2009, I mean, the U.S. has been putting a lot of its military might in Afghanistan. And, you know, when you look at the data of the surges, right, about the Obama administration, for example, did a surge and it was celebrated as, you know, this was something that was needed and it created stability and it reduced the number of U.S. troop deaths and it you reduced the number of, of, of Afghan deaths, not by as much as it probably should have, but a, a little bit of a, a fraction, right? So, yes, one can argue that when you put more troops there, um, you know, it, it creates stability. But that stability... Right, it's short-lived. It's short-term. So let's fast forward to today. If Trump was to you know, wake up and tweet out, American troops will be leaving Afghanistan tomorrow, and we ignore the logistical problems with that hypothetical scenario, and if all the troops were to leave Afghanistan within the week, what happens to the situation on the ground? 
President Trump, his main goal right now is to win re-election, right? Is to convince the American people that what he's been doing the past four years has been in their interest and is something that has, you know, made America great again. And, you know, America is still a global leader in the world. So that is sort of how he's marketing it, right? And he is he is desperate to win re-election. And so, yeah, I wouldn't put it past him to randomly tweet saying that we're leaving Afghanistan. And look, I, I de- delivered on my campaign promise, right? In 2016, he ran saying that he needed, he wanted the U.S. to withdraw from Afghanistan, that he wanted to endless, end this sort of concept of endless wars, right? Like no more war. At the moment, the U.S. are pulling back and over half of the country is either Taliban-controlled or Taliban-contested. Some senior members of the State Department are even suggesting we just stop keeping track of just how much ground the Taliban is gaining at the moment. Yet we seem to be talking about Afghanistan like we're on the brink of victory. Why are we looking at this war like we're winning this thing? You know, you're absolutely right. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like victory. And I think the reason why it doesn't feel like victory is because the U.S. invasion really has not helped the Afghani people at all. And especially when you think about the Taliban now, right, that they're gaining traction. Um, I think by 2017, they had gained a lot more territory than they had ever done in the past. And right now, you know, they're in a very strong position where they they basically control at least majority of Afghanistan or, or at least some of the key parts of it. And so I think you know, it doesn't feel like victory. And, you know, that and that's really unfortunate when you think about, you know, almost 20 years of war and, and, and not to feel that way. Now, as far as the Taliban goes, you know, I also think it's important to understand that the Taliban of today is not the Taliban of 1996. Right. The Taliban has also evolved. Now, certain parts are certainly the same and certain demands are certainly the same. They have a vision of, of, of Afghanistan and how they want it to be like an Islamic country. They um, want a certain political process in place. They certainly have certain ideas about um, women in Afghanistan and, and sort of societal norms. Certainly, none. I would argue none of that has really changed. You know, in the beginning, when the U.S., invaded Afghanistan, the Bush administration was very clear, we do not negotiate with terrorists. And, you know, the Bush administration considered the Taliban a terrorist. But the U.S. government has never officially labeled the Taliban as a foreign terrorist organization. Now, um, a foreign terrorist organization is actually a designated label, where if the U.S. government labels you, labels the group as such, then it limits um, the group, right? It limits the group's finances, they're under a lot of scrutiny. The group, no U.S. official can negotiate with the group. Um, no member of that particular group can travel to the United States. So there, it's, it's a it's very serious implication to be labeled as a foreign terrorist organization. The Taliban has never been labeled that, right? So so that's, that's number one, right? I, I don't think a lot of people realize that. Second is that, you know, the U.S. itself is kind of changing, right? It, the United States... And we see this a lot more in the Trump administration, right? And we saw the we saw the beginning of it in the Obama administration. Is the realization is that you cannot win the war in Afghanistan, regardless of how you define winning, right? Regardless of your definition, you cannot win the war unless you talk and negotiate to the Taliban, right? And I think that's why you know to some extent it it feels talking to the Taliban and knowing that the Taliban has you know taken over a lot of territory that they have actually become a lot more powerful despite all these modern militaries going after them. I think that's one of the reasons why this doesn't feel 
like a victory, right? Because the group that the whole world was basically against, right? Or at least the U.S. and its allies were against, right? I mean, the U.S. couldn't get rid of the Taliban, right? They just, they're still there. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It seems almost cliche at this point to call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires. Having swallowed up huge chunks of the Soviet, the British, the Americans, and even the Mughals' blood and treasure. It seems every time a great world superpower reaches its nexus, it seems to have its own Icarus moment, and invade the pit of mountains, frozen winters, boiling summers, and dedicated tribal fighters that is Afghanistan. So why do they all do it? What is so important to everyone hidden in the grounds of Afghanistan? What is worth breaking the backbone of your empire for? Well, for that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Eye of the Storm. Uh, you know, it really has, has not had a, a stable, modern, democratic government. Um, uh, and it's been in a state of war for about 40 years, which has really handicapped the progress of the society. It's created all this sort of systemic trauma that is difficult to, you know, pull out of. Uh, particularly when you continue to be uh, under military occupation from foreigners. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a rough place, without a doubt, in the middle of a, a somewhat dangerous neighborhood. John Glazer is the Director of Foreign Policy at the Cato Institute, specializing in U.S. grand strategy for Asia and the Middle East. He's written a number of award-winning books on the U.S.'s forever wars, as well as what can possibly be done to end them. He joins us today. I think the goals of each administration have been shifting uh, at different points in each administration. So obviously the goal initially for the Bush administration was to retaliate for the Taliban's harboring of al-Qaeda as they planned the 9-11 attacks, to go into Afghanistan to rout al-Qaeda, and to ensure that you know future such attacks could not be planned from that territory. That was the initial set of war aims. Um, when the Taliban quickly fell in the face of American power, uh, the United States began to develop new objectives. Objectives having to do with the future governance of Afghanistan. Um, objectives having to do with the society and culture of Afghanistan and wanting to change that in a way that, you know, 
Washington perceived as better um, than uh, anything the indigenous people themselves were were shooting for. Um, and uh, and then, you know, with that stated public goal, all kinds of, I think, internal goals and incentives started impacting policy. Um, uh, you had uh, military leadership along with political leadership um, kind of fibbing the uh, progress of the war, talking about how, you know, uh, we're making progress, we're defeating the Taliban, they're on their last legs, you know, the Afghan government is standing up on its own, it's democratically legitimate. These kinds of things were a way to uh, frame the war in positive terms and as if we were making progress, but I think really was a reflection of the lack of progress and the uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place that the United States found itself when it realized it couldn't achieve these exceeding ex uh, objectives about changing Afghan society and governance for the future. Um, the Obama administration came in. I think, you know, it was a time when the Iraq war was going terribly. Um, and so part of the, uh, Obama the Obama campaign's approach to Afghanistan was to frame it as the good war, frame it as something that we need to go in and finish, uh, uh, but also set timetables for. And the uh, Obama administration engaged in a massive surge. Over the course of the eight years, the Obama administration achieved exactly nothing. Uh, and so we find ourselves in, in the exact same place with roughly the same number of troops in there at the end of the Obama administration as were there at the end of the, the Bush administration. So two administrations ended up after eight years each uh, not knowing what to do and being too um, reluctant to do the right thing, although the politically difficult thing, which is to withdraw. Then you have the Trump administration coming in. And again, the president, uh, President Trump, uh, during the campaign and then, and then after inauguration, was pretty clear that he wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Um, after a lot of um, deliberation, inside the White House and a lot of internal internal pressure from his national security team and the military establishment, Trump agreed to a surge, yet another surge in Afghanistan. Again, the political objectives here were not terribly different from the ones initially set out uh, in the early years of the Bush administration. But I think the political, the real political objective was, again, to be able to say, you know, we played it tough, we surged troops, we reduced violence, and now we can leave. It's a kind of peace with honor type thing, uh, as uh, the uh, uh, Nixon administration described its exit from, from Vietnam. And now we have roughly amount, the amount of troops there that we had at the end of the Obama administration, again, with no real plan uh, to get them out, outside of these active, ongoing negotiations that uh, the U.S. Ambassador uh, Khalilzad has, uh, has been uh, leading. Those have some promise, but um, I think the real political objective through three administrations is to figure out how to withdraw from this war that we no longer need to fight in a way that is politically safe. And no, you know, all three administrations have, um, I think, acted cowardly although politically uh, safely by refusing to withdraw.
So the counterpoint people put forward against that is that if we do pull out of Afghanistan, the country will collapse. A power vacuum will ensue and we will end up in an even worse place than where we were when we first went in in 2001. Uh, Do you think there's any truth to that? So it's hard to say what will happen if, if, you know, the U.S. withdraws tomorrow. I think um, the optimistic side would say that uh, the Taliban and the Afghan government are um, engaged in negotiations right now. There's a possibility for some kind of uh, peaceful shout, share, uh, power sharing agreement. Um, it's um, there's some measure of deterrent effect. You know, the Taliban have about as much control over the territory now as they had in uh, 2001, um, and the Afghan government has much uh, less control over over the overall territory. It has. Uh, significant control in Kabul, and it has weapons. It has the ability to resist a Taliban advance. So any Taliban advance to really just rout the Afghan government with violence, if uh, Afghanistan were to descend into civil war following U.S. withdrawal, um, you know, there is some deterrent there. It would be extremely costly for them, even if they might succeed in the end. And so the optimists would say that there's a chance for some kind of permanent ceasefire and a power sharing agreement. Uh, The cynic uh, or the realist might acknowledge that Afghan politics are just not better than they have been in the past. They're just as fraught. They're uh, entangled with all kinds of uh, tribal conflicts and affiliations. and uh, uh, it's very likely that things could descend into civil war if we, if we withdraw without some kind of lasting political agreement uh, that stabilizes things. So let's say the U.S. do leave and the civil war intensifies. One side may start losing. And if they start losing, they are very likely to turn to foreign powers to help them support the cause. So which countries do you think would be likely to interfere in a deepening Afghan civil war? Well, I think you, given the regional politics, um, I think you can expect, you know, a lot of meddling from the regional players. Um, you know, Pakistan, for example, still has, maintains deep relations with elements of the Taliban. Uh, they continue to provide safe haven for insurgents uh, across the border in Pakistani territory. Um, the uh, security services in Afghanistan have relations with these kinds of groups going back many, many decades. Um, and, um, you know, Afghanistan is, is seen as a, uh, as a kind of strategic chessboard in the competition between nuclear-armed Pakistan and nuclear-armed India. Uh, and so India also has an interest in what happens in Afghanistan, ensuring that it remains stable, that it remains not too much under the influence of the Pakistani government, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, neighboring Iran on the other side you know, has a long history of cooperating with uh, the Taliban when it's necessary, but also uh, acting against them uh, uh, because uh, their interests often conflict. Um, and so, look, the region is, is certainly complicated, but I think uh, um, most of the players have a desire for stability and a reduction in violence. You know, China does border Afghanistan, 
uh, if only in a small piece of territory. Uh, and it has concerns about the flow of insurgents um, through northern Afghanistan uh, and into uh, southwest uh, China, where they already have a kind of uh, secessionist uh, movement and a kind of um, uh, restless uh, Muslim-dominated province there. Um, Russia, too, is concerned about insurgencies and uh, militant groups in Central Asia, right? So I think in, in the long term, it's, uh, it's, it's for the most part, not, notwithstanding some, some problems and conflicts of interest, for example, Pakistan and India, but generally I think uh, the region favors a stable Afghan government, um, whether it's a brutal Taliban or a brutal, uh, the brutal one set up by the United States, um, and uh, they want to uh, reduce the violence overall and, and prevent uh, insurgents from emanating out of, out of Afghanistan and having the kind of instability that has characterized internal Afghan politics not spill over uh, into the region. So that's what they want, and I think in general that's what they'll pursue. Yes, the region is going to compete over what happens in Afghanistan. They're going to try to protect their own interests, maybe in some ugly ways, maybe by funding militant groups. But the question for the United States is, to what extent does this impact our core security interests in such a way that it is incumbent upon policymakers to insert ourselves in that competition? Throughout Asia at the moment, where we see the US pull back, China usually moves into the vacuum. Do you think we may see China play a larger role in Afghanistan going forward? Who Kabul will look to uh, for outside support uh, depends on, you know, who, would, who, what, who we mean when we say Kabul, right? If there's a civil war and the Taliban gain full control, Kabul will be the Taliban, essentially. And so, um, you know, I think they'll, they'll aim for peaceful relations with uh, the region. They'll probably continue uh, for at least some time uh, to uh, shore up uh, resources via their drug trade. Um, and, and, and sure, they will look to the region for international support. A thing like China's infrastructure projects planned in the Belt and Road Project, for example. You know, those if, if those were to come to Afghanistan, um, you know, it, it is often perceived, that kind of development is often perceived in the United States as a kind of win for China, you know, something that we have to prevent because it, China will then have a leg up uh, stri- geostrategically against the United States. And, and I don't view it that way at all. I think the BRI has some potential to uh, be constructive towards uh, further uh, integrating uh, the uh, economics and trade of uh, the, the countries that, that are involved. Uh, I think some, in some respects the planned projects uh, will turn out to come back in Beijing's face um, to, you know, they deal with cost overruns and corruption all the time with, you know, even existing projects and it's still early in the effort. If, uh, if the Afghan government, uh, the one that uh, the United States helps, helped establish, is able to retain some power, or there's some kind of power-sharing agreement between the existing government 
and the Taliban, which is an unlikely but still you know, on the agenda in the negotiations. It's an unlikely outcome, but still on the agenda for the negotiations. You know, if that were to happen, I think you're going to see uh, ongoing U.S. support to Kabul. The main reason being the current Kabul government cannot uh, sustain itself independently. It requires aid from, from outside, from the United States, from NATO countries, from the international community in general. And so if, if, if that kind of uh, support dries up, you're, you will, I think, see a pretty rapid collapse of the Kabul government, and uh, that will provide uh, the space for the Taliban to move in. And so as the United States withdraws, I think what you're going to see is a, a reluctance, a lingering reluctance to abandon the country. Yeah, I think the story of Afghanistan for the foreseeable future is going to be a story of uh, flows of resources from various countries to various groups inside of Afghanistan. And, and that doesn't actually bode well for Afghanistan. It doesn't bode well for for the for the donors so to speak you know um i think uh, that would lead to to more mess so what about right now where are the taliban getting their weapons from today most of the weapons they use are old soviet style weapons and they of course get a flow get flows of weapons these days uh from uh pakistani isi and that that has been true throughout the uh throughout the uh the the war um Again, I think most of their finances come from the drug trade and from uh, forcible taxation of, of the population. So what about Russia? There are reports that Russia is putting lots of arms into Afghanistan, knowing they'll be fired against U.S. citizens. You know, how true do you think those reports are? Yeah, there have been reports of uh, Russians uh, aiding the Taliban. It's also true that with the arms trade, you know, one country can send out a shipment and it can get go through many hands and end up in, in uh, some place like the Taliban's hands. Uh, uh, so yeah, those reports of Russia aiding the Taliban in, in, um, in, uh, in opposition to occupying U.S. forces uh, have validity. You know, is the, I, I think they're, they're accurate. They're based on uh, plausible intelligence uh, that, that that's going on and it's also not, you know, it's to be expected. It's it's the kind of thing that we did when the Russians were occupying. It's the kind of thing that, that adversary nations do when when one of them is uh, you know, sucked into a quagmire yeah, uh, adversary nations tend to support the opposition uh, within that quagmire. Part of the peace terms is that the Taliban can stop the violence on their side uh, and promise 60 to 90 days without any attacks. Uh, do you think the Taliban are actually cohesive enough to be able to provide this demand? The Taliban is a cohesive enough group that uh, I think there's reason to believe them when they say that they can uh, effectively establish a ceasefire and stop all their militants from engaging in violence. Um, uh, they have recently actually switched up the lead negotiators that are appearing in Doha uh, to, uh, you know, they, they've relied on members of the Taliban that have uh, a lot of influence and sway with disparate elements uh, within the Taliban that disagree with each other. And so that's an effort, I think, to 
uh, create more uh, unity in the Taliban and, and create more control and therefore add credibility to the Taliban claims that they can actually uh, quell violence. So do you think we've been down this road before? Do you think the next few months will look closer to, let's say, the UK leaving Egypt or something akin to the US route from South Vietnam? Yeah, I think I think it's uh, more akin to the, the Vietnam situation. I think there was a I think there was more of a political consensus um, that uh, the United States can and should uh, maintain a robust deterrent military presence uh, in Northeast Asia in the early years of the uh, of the Cold War. Um, and so I think uh, the, 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 the way the, the Korean War ended and that kind of stalemate uh, meant that the United States was going to stick around on behalf of its uh, South Korean partners. The situation in Afghanistan is, is quite different. Um, we're not talking about splitting the country in two. Um, and, um, and the political consensus is not there for an um, um, indefinite type of, of military presence. Uh, the American people don't want to stay there overwhelmingly. Um, and uh, that has uh, actually, I think, gotten to a point where it's begun to pressure policymakers. And so I think there's an acknowledgement that we cannot treat this like a, like a Korea or a Germany, uh, and that uh, we have to withdraw um, you know, and that might include some of the ugliness that was associated with the withdrawal from Vietnam. It's more akin to, to Vietnam without a doubt. And I think uh, you'll probably see it play out uh, on the ground in Afghanistan in a way not too different from, from Vietnam. That is to say, there will be a continued effort to support the, um, the Afghan government uh, after with withdrawal of troops. Um, and then there will be probably likely continued fighting uh, among uh, Afghans for uh, political control of the country. And over the long term, I think the Taliban has more chances to win uh, in that kind of fight. It's by no means uh, a destiny, but uh, the long term prospects are that the, the, Af the, the Taliban can sustain that kind of fight much better than the, the Afghan government. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1989, when the Soviets left Afghanistan, the US had the chance to seize the moment, come in as heroes, and finally stabilize Afghanistan. But we didn't, and the country fell to extremism. Then in 1996, before the Taliban stormed Kabul, the US had the chance to fund anti-Taliban warlords to help shape the fight. They didn't, and the Taliban took control of the capital going on to be the home of many terrorist organizations. After 2001, when the military weight of the US smashed the Afghan forces, when the Taliban were at their weakest, 
We had a chance to solve this, and we didn't. So the Taliban regrouped in the mountains and began a long and costly war for the US. We had peace talks a few years ago, but never followed through, hoping we'd get a better deal. But we didn't. And the people of Afghanistan started to wonder if it may be wiser to not put all their eggs in the US basket, knowing that the US would probably eventually leave, abandoning them to the Taliban. So now we have another peace deal in the works. Could this one be the one that finally ends the war? Or are we going to walk away again and roll the dice, hoping for a better negotiation position in a few years? Is this another one of those times we should have taken the deal? Well, to answer that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. How to turn a bad deal into a worse deal. No, the war in, the, in Afghanistan cannot be won by the United States. We've never articulated uh, an achievable set of military objectives. And so the real task for U.S. political leadership at this point is to uh, is to figure out what it is that we want from Afghanistan that's achievable within our means. Jarrett Blanc is a senior fellow for the Carnegie Institute. Jarrett was previously the lead coordinator for the State Department for the JCPOA, better known as the Iran nuclear deal. And prior to this position, he was the US's principal deputy special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Jarrett worked very closely with President Obama himself and shaped the US policy for Afghanistan and Iran in his administration. We are very proud to have him join us today. Well, actually, I think the irony is that uh because we thought that we were about to, or that we had won the war in the early years, 2001, 2002, uh, we refused early efforts on behalf of the Taliban to negotiate some kind of, I think, fairly comprehensive surrender on their part. So, and, and it turned out that we were wrong. We hadn't won. We weren't about to win. And basically with every passing year, uh, the the negotiable terms that we could achieve with the Taliban have become less and less favorable to us. So in 2001, if we had been realistic about our interests and our means, I think we could have negotiated a very good um, uh, post-Taliban arrangement in Afghanistan. We chose not to do so. Uh, but it, it's, it's so... In retrospect, I think what we could have gotten in 2001 or 2002 would look a lot like winning. We didn't do it because we thought we were going to quote-unquote win, if that makes sense. As it currently stands in 2020, who has the momentum in this war? The momentum rests at least to some extent with the Taliban right now. And, and you sometimes you hear the U.S. military talking about a, a, a deteriorating stalemate. Well, there's no such thing as a deteriorating stalemate. A stalemate is stalemated. If it's deteriorating, it means that you're slowly losing. And I think that's what's happening right now. The Taliban have some momentum, whether it's a lot or a little, I think you can debate. Uh, but it's clearly not in our favor or in the favor of, of our partners in Afghanistan. So if the situation keeps getting worse and worse for us, what happens if we just pull up the stakes and leave? You know, what would happen to Afghanistan if we declared victory today? The most likely outcome at this stage is going to be that the U.S. draws down to the numbers that have been floated over the course of the last few months. You know, maybe between four or 5,000 uh, troops in Afghanistan by Election Day or Inauguration Day. Um, although certainly the president has occasionally uh, proposed 
um, you know, more dramatic changes in force levels in Afghanistan or other countries. The fact is that he's never really followed through on them, and I'm skeptical that he would do so at this stage in Afghanistan. Um, you know, so so if he, but let's let's speculate for a moment about what would happen if he did. You know, the question is, is are our partners in Afghanistan a, a real military political political military force? that is capable of continuing to fight the Taliban um, without U.S. combat support. So let's say perhaps with continued U.S. financial support, but not U.S. combat support on the ground. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I think a lot of people um, write it off and they kind of, I think they have, even if they haven't fully expressed it, a sort of image of our partners in Afghanistan that is analogous to um our partners in Saigon, that, that there's nothing really there. And that without the United States, they would just be sort of blown away like a, you know, a, a, a cloud of dust. Um, I think that that's probably unfair to them. I think that they act, that our partners in Afghanistan actually have a greater degree of uh, political and military strength and reality to them um, than those in Vietnam did. Uh, but, um, you know, if you created the psychological conditions for collapse, then there could be a collapse, right? So if instead of a sort of organized withdrawal, you just said in the next six weeks, all American troops are going to be gone, that might be enough to kind of puncture the balloon of our partner's confidence and lead to a full scale, you know, South Vietnam style collapse um, with the Taliban then uh, achieving, you know, sort of a rapid military victory, take over the cities, that kind of thing. Um, uh, it, it, I, you know, in general, I think that the argument that if you believe that our, if you believe that our partners in Afghanistan are, are basically analogous to Saigon, um, that's not a very good argument for the United States to stay, right? If after 20 years, the best we've been able to do is a weak and corrupt state that cannot survive without U.S. military forces, then we should probably accept that we have failed at the project we've set ourselves and move on. Um, I think that there's a caveat to that view on my part, which is, you know, such a rapid change in U.S. presence that it could potentially lead to a psychological collapse that is not really necessary in sort of the real terms of the of the conflict. Um and and just to wrap this up, I would say that th this kind of explains my skepticism about you know whether or not Trump would actually do this because I think that um, right now Afghanistan is not really an election issue in the United States to the extent that he wants to declare victory and say that he's ended the war, he can just do that. He lies about things all the time, so he can just say I've ended the war, uh, running the risk of pulling all of the troops out and having a real spectacle in Kabul where the government collapses and the Taliban rolls in. I don't see how that makes a whole lot of political sense to him. Around this time last year, Trump announced a peace deal with the Taliban negotiated through Qatar. The Taliban were even due to send representatives to Camp David to sign, but it all fell apart. Why didn't the deal work out, and why was Qatar so involved? Well, so, so first of all, I, I, I think I would challenge the premise that there was a peace deal on the table in 2019. Um, the, the, the United States and the Taliban spent a long time negotiating an agreement between the United States and the Taliban. Um, but a real peace deal would require 
also an agreement between the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan and other Afghan forces. So the the deal that's being operated now, the Doha arrangement that's being operated is is very similar to the deal that, that President Trump walked away from in September 2019. I, I don't think I would describe that as a peace deal per se. Um, what's the role of Qatar? Well, uh, basically, if you go back even further to uh, 2009, 2010, when the Taliban were trying to find a way to communicate uh, and to begin negotiations with the United States, they chose Qatar as um, the country that would host their political office. Uh, and the the Qataris have then had a greater or lesser role at different times in the actual negotiations um, between the United States and the Taliban. I think that the deal that was struck uh, between the United States and the Taliban you know, it, it owes something to Qatari generosity and hospitality, but it was really mainly negotiated directly between the United States and the Taliban. And what were the terms of that 2019 agreement? Well, the, the Taliban's main interest uh, vis-a-vis the United States is the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. And then they have some secondary interests as well, um, including an end to international opprobrium, so U.S. sanctions, U.N. sanctions, which target the Taliban as a terrorist organization, um, and potentially over the longer term, the possibility of U.S. or international assistance to an Afghan government that would include in some substantial way the Taliban. Um, the U.S. interests in, a, in vis-a-vis the Taliban, the first and most important is that the Taliban agree to play some role in policing the territory they control or influence against internationally focused terrorist groups. And then related but somewhat separate to that is um, uh, our desire that this, as I explained a moment ago, that this deal between the United States and the Taliban be expanded um, to potentially be a real peace deal between the Taliban, the government of Afghanistan, and other forces. And so if you look at the the, you know, the basic construct of the deal is that the United States promises that we'll withdraw our forces from Afghanistan. The Taliban promise um, to break from international terrorist groups, including al-Qaeda, and police their territory against internationally focused terrorist groups, and to begin uh, um, intra-Afghan negotiations that would include the government of Afghanistan and, and all of what I kind of call the bond forces, the, um, the, the government and the loyal opposition who emerged from the bond process and the constitution that, uh, that came from that. We made a very similar deal with the North Vietnamese at the end of the Vietnam War. And the moment we pulled back, the North quickly invaded and conquered South Vietnam. So what would stop the Taliban from doing something very similar? You know, signing the deal, the U.S. leaves, and the Taliban move in and conquer the territory we just gave up defending. Well, you know, that, that's a real problem. Um, so uh, the question is, what leverage uh, does the United States have over the Taliban um, as it moves toward a zero troop level. And and I think that there are a few potential positive answers to that question. So one form of leverage is that we might still be able to uh, influence their battlefield prospects, even if we don't have troops on the ground, right? So using long range air power, or, uh, other means, it might well be that the United States is capable of denying them military victory, even without the number of troops that we've had recently in Afghanistan. So that's one potential form of leverage. A second potential form of leverage is our support for our partners in Afghanistan. Again, 
can they continue to deny the Taliban victory on the battlefield with our support? And then a third form of leverage, again, goes back to what I talked about a little bit before, which is this question of international legitimacy and international support. The Taliban do have a, you know, a, an institutional recollection of what it was like to be the government of Afghanistan uh, as an international pariah, right, with only three countries in the world recognizing their legitimacy, um, no international development assistance, no financial support of any kind, no military support of any kind. Now, you know, maybe they would accept to do that again if they have no other options, but it does seem likely that they would at least explore the possibility of coming to some compromise solution, which would allow them to have um, both a role, a substantial role in the government of Afghanistan and some, you know, international support and, and legitimacy. So it, what I've just described is a fairly complicated military and diplomatic picture, but it, it's too easy just to say once the United States follows through on Doha, it no longer has any capacity uh, to influence the Taliban's thinking or decision making. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. And what about the U.S. going back on their word? With the U.S. going through with the Iran deal and then the next administration coming in and tearing it up, do you think anyone negotiating with the U.S. for long-term deals may be a bit more hesitant to trust Washington at the moment? Well, I think that the United States has got a real problem to overcome in the future as a result, not only of the Trump administration's withdrawal from the JCPOA, but a whole variety of things that the Trump administration has done that have you know, broken from um, the world's, I think, legitimate expectations about how a major power like the United States will behave. So withdrawal from the JCPOA, withdrawal from the, the International Postal Union, um, withdrawal from Paris, uh, withdrawal from um, uh, the interme the uh, INF arms control agreement and possible failure to with new with with uh, to renew the uh, new start agreement um, targeting uh, um, allied officials and international civil servants with draconian financial sanctions I mean there are all these things that we've done um, which I think have have really reduced people's confidence that they understand where we're coming from. And I think that's a problem that we're going to have to overcome. Um, it also happens that the deal that the Taliban struck with the United States in Doha, even if the United States were to renege at some point in the future, which is obviously not the Taliban's interest, but even if they were, the deal itself was probably still pretty good for the Taliban, right? They still get to present themselves as being a legitimate Afghan force, very nearly a government in exile, negotiating with the world's superpower, uh, you know, these dramatic pictures of... Um, uh, Ambassador uh, Khalizad and, and Mullah Baradar sitting next to each other with the flags behind them. So, you know, I, I think that from the Taliban's perspective, there probably wasn't that much risk associated with with a U.S. failure to stick to the terms of the deal. It's still they still probably emerged stronger than than they would have with no deal. At this point, all of the negotiations have been between the U.S. and the Taliban. 
and have not involved the current UN-recognized Afghan government based in Kabul. So why hasn't the Afghan government been included in these talks? The United States, this started back when I was doing this uh, under President Obama, the United States had a, had, a, had a position, which is we want to negotiate with the Taliban, but first the Taliban has to begin negotiations with the government of Afghanistan, and once those negotiations are underway, the United States and the Taliban can have a conversation about the things that sort of exist between us that we've already talked about, right? So the, the, the Taliban's concern about our troop presence in Afghanistan and our concern about the Taliban's um, ability and willingness to police the territory they control or influence against internationally focused terrorist groups. Um, the Taliban's response to that ever since you know 2009 has been, no, uh, we're willing to talk to you and we're willing to talk to the government of Afghanistan, but you've got the order reversed. You, It wasn't this government of Afghanistan that kicked us out of Kabul in 2001. It was you. It's not the government of Afghanistan that's having the most profound effect to, on us on the battlefield today. It's you. And so first we'll talk to you and then we'll talk to the government of Afghanistan. Bluntly speaking, for years, I argued that we should accept that uh, sequence as the Taliban were demanding it, not because I thought that they were right in any moral or analytical way, but because it became clear to me that that they weren't going to move forward on the sequ- on the on the objectively better sequence that we preferred. And so really the biggest thing that the Trump administration did was to make this concession to the Taliban, a concession that I think was appropriate to begin the conversation between the Taliban and the United States as a prelude to the Taliban Kabul conversation, rather than as a follow on to the, um, the Taliban Kabul conversation. Now, so, so I think that was an appropriate concession. I think it was necessary to get things started. Now that said, I think, it looks to me, and it's hard to say for sure because so much of this is is, is still not transparent, um, but it looks to me like there are ways in which the United States probably went too far and sort of um, uh, uh, set in some further concrete the Taliban's impression that the government of Afghanistan really is not – they don't have to worry too much about the government of Afghanistan. They just have to talk to us. So, for example, you know, I, I think that – it it looks to me like the the U.S. probably made some promises about these prisoner releases that had not been coordinated with the government of Afghanistan, um, and then essentially you know used our leverage with the government of Afghanistan to get them to follow through on things that we couldn't control. Right? We didn't control those prisoners that Kabul did. Um, so I, I I think you know to go back to your question, shouldn't you know isn't Ghani right to be annoyed? Well. I can understand why he would be annoyed by us switching the sequence, but I think it was something that we had to do. I can better understand why he's annoyed by some of the specific details in the agreements that we made. And I think, frankly, that we went farther than we needed to or than we should have in um, making concessions that were really only cobbles to make. So the claim always made is that it was the Trump administration that achieved this deal. So was there a reason you think that this deal wasn't done under the Obama administration? So, so first of all, let me say that uh, I think there is a deep tragedy in the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, which is that 
uh, our position to negotiate a good deal, good for us, good for the people of Afghanistan, has declined essentially with every passing year. We could have gotten what in retrospect would have been an amazing deal in December 2001. We could have gotten a great deal in 2005. In 2012, I think we could have gotten a pretty good deal. In 2015, we could have gotten a pretty good deal. Um, the deal that we got in Doha, although probably, you know, in broad terms, a reasonable given the amount of leverage we had left is a pretty bad deal. Um, and so I really wish that in the Obama administration, we had been able to make that key concession that I described a moment ago of reversing the sequence, having the U.S. Taliban conversation first as a prelude to the Taliban government of Afghanistan conversation. Why weren't we able to do it when, when, why was Trump able to do it? Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard for me to answer that question. I might not have enough distance on it. I mean, it certainly is the case that the the kinds of attacks that the Republican Party and frankly, probably some Democrats in Congress would have leveled against President Obama for the deal that President Trump concluded, you know, were simply not seen against President Trump. And so he had a greater degree of um, domestic politi political maneuverability. And, you know, at some point, uh, and I can't, I can't say that that's why President Obama didn't, did not switch the sequence. Maybe he just wasn't, maybe my arguments weren't persuasive and he wasn't convinced. So if this deal isn't great, what about the other option touted by senior Republicans? To hand the war over to Eric Prince and his private militaries? You know, have PMCs fight the war rather than US soldiers? Do you think that would solve the problem? The only problem that would solve would be Eric Prince's bank accounts. Um, there is absolutely no reason to believe that uh, private mercenary forces would have greater military capacity than the United States military in Afghanistan. There's also no reason to believe that they would be less expensive than the United States military in Afghanistan. I mean, that was, um, you know, you could, uh, calling that idea insane gives it too much credit. It was uh, a cynical money-making effort. So you don't give any credit to the idea of running Afghanistan much like the British in the 1800s in a viceroy-like state? There is um, absolutely no reason to believe, based on the U.S. experience in Afghanistan over the course of the last 20 years, that we or anybody else is capable of establishing uh, an effective viceroy rule over Afghanistan. That's ludicrous. H how many Americans even speak the language? It's just, it's, it's, it's absurd. So let's play this out a bit and assume the Taliban get this deal and force the U.S. out of Afghanistan. You know, who would they turn to for support in the international community? So, again, I think it depends very much on, you know, if, if you had a if you have the government of Afghanistan collapse and the Taliban take over without any kind of negotiated settlement, um, I'm not sure that they end up with very many um uh, friends who are willing to publicly identify themselves as such, right? They'll certainly continue to have support from Pakistan. And I imagine that they would establish intelligence relationships with some of the key regional players, um, China, Russia, Iran, etc. cetera. Um, but I don't think that you would have a lot of countries lining up to support them. I think that um, legitimacy is going to be something that the United States has a fair amount of influence over for some time to come. And that's part of the reason why the Taliban does have incentives to seek to negotiate a peaceful conclusion to the war rather than uh, rather than going necessarily for a, a outright victory. 
most of the countries in the region have real concerns about what happens if thing if the, if the wheels really fall off in Afghanistan, right? And you end up in a situation where the Taliban have full control, or there's just a really brutal continuation of the civil war where all sides have some incentive to invite in internationally focused terrorist groups. So based on what you're seeing today, what do you think Afghanistan's future will be in, let's say, the short, medium and long term? You know, what does it look like in three months time? Again, I'm going to guess it looks pretty much like it does today in three months time. I don't think that the I don't think that President Trump is going to order an immediate withdrawal. And I think you're, what you're probably going to have is sort of uh, a continuation of the current status quo with all sides waiting to see what happens in the U.S. presidential election. Um, in 18 months time, you know, the best case scenario is that uh, there is a substantial peace process underway between the different combatant forces in Afghanistan, which is leading toward, but probably has not yet reached, um, uh, a new political arrangement, um, which is uh, more sustainable for all involved. Hopefully, by 18, you know, in eight months' time, you could have, uh, as part of that peace process, a comprehensive ceasefire so that Afghan, the Afghan people are no longer suffering the way they are today. Um, in 10 years' time, well, uh, you know, one possibility is that there is a peace deal in Afghanistan that has sort of held. Um, under those circumstances, you're probably going to have uh, parts of Afghanistan that are under kind of more or less... Taliban governance, parts of Afghanistan that are under more or less bond governance. Um, I think that a, if the peace deal is actually held, it would be good for all of those parts of Afghanistan, because at least there would not be the degree of political violence that we've seen. And you could, over time, see political and economic development that's in a sort of progressive direction as a result of peace. Um, you could have just a continuation of the civil war. I mean, 10 years sounds like a long time, but as we talked about a minute ago, this civil war has been underway for 40 years. And so you could easily just be in the same situation that you're in today. Um, you could have a collapse of the government in Afghanistan and a, and a bond and a, and a Taliban government coming into place. And that is still sort of tenuously impoverishing the country in 10 years or, you know, and, and the worst case scenario is that, Basically, all of the political order, all of the political organizations in Afghanistan collapse as a result of the withdrawal of U.S. forces, right? The government of Afghanistan collapses because they no longer have us to rely upon. The Taliban collapses because maybe it turns out that we were the ordering force that drew together their different factions. And you go back into this really terrible condition of the early 1990s of a sort of Hobbesian civil war of, of all against all. Um, uh, there, so that's a very, very wide range of of scenarios. The, I get the maybe the the point that I would end with on this question is that if you care as I do about the future of the people of Afghanistan, you have to recognize that there's no hail mary here. There's no uh, you know single play that resolves their problems and results in a prosperous, progressive. Uh, uh, governance where women's rights are, are respected and people are able to live their lives the way we would hope that they're able to live their lives. That future depends on A, peace, and then B, slow, natural political and economic development. Sometimes decisions are not between good or bad, but they're between bad and worse. And this is where the U.S. currently sits, 
to stay in Afghanistan is not popular. More and more men and women die, and the US spends billions from their treasury to continue to lose a war, even at this slow pace. The Taliban are winning the fight, capturing city after city as the US retreats their strongholds. And before long, the US will be down to Kabul and a few dedicated areas. Afghanistan will simply become a collection of US islands in the sea of Taliban ground. The current US-sponsored Afghan government may hold up, but most experts don't hold too much faith in that. And if they fall, the Taliban will take their place. The clocks turn back to 1996, before we even entered the picture. The Afghan National Army may be strong enough to continue the fight, we really just don't know. But how long then till the militants get desperate and take up the office for support from extremists from around the world so they can once and for all win their war? Can we really be so sure that the Taliban won't introduce extremists into the country again in a hope to win the war finally? We also don't know if the US is simply the one thing uniting the different tribes of the Taliban together. And if the US leave, do the various warlords then simply all turn on each other? in a desperate bid to be the head of the pile. Does this simply complicate the situation? Turning it from a two-part civil war to a six-way brutal civil war? We just don't know. We also don't know if unfriendly governments in Islamabad and Tehran will take advantage of the situation and how that will play out. Because again, once the US leave Afghanistan, it will be political suicide to go back. So when you close the door, you need to make sure that door doesn't need to be opened again. Three administrations have dealt with this dilemma. To trust the devil you know, even though that you're slowly losing and is draining your strength away bit by bit. Or to pull out and face the infinite number of unknown outcomes. This is the Afghan dilemma, and there are no good answers. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned into the show this week. It really does mean a lot to see all of the downloads coming in each week. If you like what you heard today and you really want to help the show, you can donate to our Patreon. We're currently putting together our Christmas list for this year to send a Christmas gift to each and every single one of our Patreons, just as a small thank you for the huge support they give to the show. Without their support, we really just couldn't run this thing. So thank you again. Or if you want to join that list or simply help the show in some way, even a dollar a month really does help us out. So visit our Patreon and support the show in any way you can. But if you don't want to spend any money or you simply aren't in that position, you can follow The Red Line on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on at The Red Line Pod. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Kelly at Oz. Oz is in Australia. A big thank you to all of our guests this week. This is Sahar's second time on the program as she appeared on our episode about private militaries. And both times she was amazing to work with. I genuinely enjoyed her insight and cannot speak more highly of her as a person. We will be sure to have her back on the program very soon. But if you want to find her on Twitter, you can find her at KhanSahar1. John Glazer has written some amazing works on this subject and lays out some of the best plans and papers for getting the US out of the region with the least collateral damage. If you want to dive deeper into his work, I highly recommend you check it out, and you can find it on Twitter at JWGlazer. 
It's always amazing to talk to the actual man in the room, the person who actually shaped the decisions that bring us to where we are today. And Jarrett is that man in the room. He was instrumental in the Iran nuclear deal and was one of Obama's main people in the Middle East. It was amazing to have him on the program. And you can find out more of his in-depth analysis on the Middle East on Twitter at Jarrett Blanc. As usual, a huge thanks goes out to Joe Hawthorne, who helps us by cleaning up the audio. And he makes sure that the production level of the show is as high as we can be. Joe has become an integral part of this show, and I really do want to say thanks to him. Another thanks as well to Mark Spencer. Mark is one of the most charismatic and fantastic people working in this field. He single-handedly runs his own network of shows under the climactic banner. And yet, he still finds the time each and every fortnight to help us out with the chapter titles for the show. We cannot thank him enough. So if you want to show your support from the red line through to Mark, you can follow him on Twitter at Climactic Show. Our next episode will be our one-year anniversary, something that still boggles my mind to this day. So tune in next fortnight for a very special red line episode. But until next fortnight, I want to say thank you and good night. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.